You know, our whole lives were measured, right? Right from the moment we're born, six pounds, six ounces, 21 inches long. That was my first son. Uh, we enter school almost immediately, and right away, every topic, everything we write, every report we hand in, given a grade, performance review, sports teams are picking those who measure up to the experience of the coaches or the expectations of what the team wants coming from that individual. Even as a culture, we just look at it and we know that whether it's out front or subconsciously, we create a grid of which we believe a person in good standing fits. And so there are certain things, even sadly, things like, well, they should weigh this much, they should be this tall, this height, they should have that type of body type, even with what we wear. The brands and the names and the materials, and somehow they all give or supposedly give an indication as to the status of that individual. What job do you have? What part of town do you live in? What kind of car do you drive? You know, it, it just never ends. You're going to measure me this morning. How long has he gone, right? You're going to time it. When you meet someone for the first time, I guarantee you, again, whether you know it or not, within the first few moments, you have already subconsciously measured them. You've already made certain speculations about this individual. His voice, his mannerism, his looks. What's he wearing? What's he not wearing? I'm glad you can't see my fingernails. I was doing landscaping all day yesterday, and I'm driving here going, ooh, that don't look good. But anyways, but we do it. Pastor Scott Joy, who used to be at Faith Community Baptist Church, I remember the first time I met him, we became friends. We were in ministry for a number of years. It wasn't a few years in until he came up to me one time, and he said, Glenn, I just want to share something with you. You know, when we first met, I didn't think I was going to like you. That hurt. That really hurt. I, I just remember for nights going, what did I do? Was I too loud? I am loud. Don't often need the mic. And I, I tend to get a little carried away. But, you know, it, it bothered me for the longest time. And it's not that we just do that to others. Every single time you get up in the morning, right, you look in the mirror. And you're already making judgment calls. You're measuring yourself up. There are things that bother you, things that you want to see done. We just have insecurities. We know ourselves, but we're measuring ourselves all the time. We're not satisfied often. This isn't nothing new. This has been with mankind from the beginning of time. Thousands of years ago in the scriptures, in a book called Judges that we're going to look at this morning, there was a young lad who had some self-worth issues. And we're going to focus a little more on that part of his aspect of God's calling for him in his life in a few points down. But for now, let it be known that God, the angel of the Lord, appears to him and says, I have a task. I have something for you to do. Hey, something simple. It's called save your nation, the nation of Israel. You see, at that moment in their history, the Midianites were ravaging the countryside along with a lot of other eastern foreigners. They were rooting their crops. They were destroying their cattle. And we are told that while one, we're given a hint earlier, that God was allowing this, by the way, because of Israel's stubbornness. But at this point in time... Enough was enough, and it was to stop. And so God, in the angel of the Lord, stood before Gideon, and he says in Judges 6.11, 
The angel of the Lord came, sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abzerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. It was at the kind of a bottom of a hill hiding so that they wouldn't see him working there. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I go, Whoa. I was doing this in my devotions a little while back. And, and by the way, anytime there's things that start to work and it looks like a good message, I put a big M on the top of my page. So whenever I'm asked to speak, I go find my M's. I go, oh yeah, that was really cool. I remember God told me something there. And this was right away hitting me and going, oh, mighty warrior. That, that, can you imagine? I, I would like that on my resume, at the back of my jersey, mighty warrior, signed by God. You know, I, that'd be pretty good. But I don't think Gideon was really buying it that much at the time. And so we read that and we understand that as he's looking at this, he goes, wow, there's a significance to this, probably this title, I'm guessing, right away, Mighty Warrior, something's coming. Now, before I move on to how we responded, each of us have significant titles as well in the kingdom of God and his family. I just want to share with you 1 John 3, 1. Do you know this? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That's a title we have right there. There are many more, but that's one of them. And as Gideon is about to discover in his conversation with the angel, there comes some responsibility, some expectations with those titles that we carry. So, for example, children of God, we are told in Ephesians 2.10 that, yes, we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. That God prepared in advance for us to do. There's an expectation. As our title. Somehow when I run into people and they say, you know what, I'm just here to get most toys before I die. I'm just here to have fun, to exist, to live as long as I can in health, all these type of things. And sometimes it comes from people who are claiming to be Christians and they very well may be. But I look at that and go, well, how do you read the Bible and walk away with that mindset that that's all you're called to do is just exist, maintain, and that's it. There's way more expectations with what we are given I'm sorry, but that's just laid out for us in the scripture. And you, you may not be visited by the angel of the Lord, but you pick up the Bible and you start reading through it and you go, wow, there are challenges and there are responsibilities and I could read as many verses as you want. We'd be here till late tonight. So, was Gideon up for the challenge? As I'm doing my devotions, I'm already writing, Glenn, are you up for the challenge? I have a feeling God's taken me somewhere here. And as I read this text... And in the conversation between Gideon and the angel Lord, I'm going, I see some really strong familiarities. Kind of the same way that mankind tends to think whenever approached by God with a call. And so I started as a pastor, always going, I'm going to look for some points. And we're going to find some of these principles. And I want to share with them you today as well. But first, I want you to see the response that Gideon gives. The mighty warrior. He starts off going, "Uh, pardon me, Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The mighty warrior thing just dropped a few notches. I'm thinking, that's not what I would be doing with an angel of the Lord, whatever. But that's okay. He came up and he started sharing from his heart. And... I'm looking at this, 
And as a child of God, I go, well, Glenn, you know, a lot of times you do the same thing. We may be a child of God, but we exist in the history and what might have happened in the stories long before and nothing seems to be going right now, but we forget about the enemy. So we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, the text many of you are familiar with, it says, yeah, you are in a war. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty arm power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can take your stand against the enemy, the devil's schemes. Our struggle isn't about flesh and blood. It's about the authorities, the principalities. It's about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's going, you know what? Here's part of that principle. There is something going on, and you guys better pick up on it quickly. And instead of maybe hiding like Gideon and just maintaining life, God comes to us and says, you know what? An enemy exists. There is havoc. There is trouble. And so, mighty warrior, there are some principles that need to take place. Child of God, there are some principles that need to take place. So I looked at this conversation. I pulled out three. The first kingdom principle I found was, you know what? Life in the kingdom includes distress, despite the presence of God and the existence of God in our lives. You know, Gideon right away talks about the wonders of the past. And I'm going, well, yeah, they were incredible wonders, but I think you're forgetting something, Gideon. Do you not remember, despite the wonders, despite the sea being split, being led by night by fire, manna coming from the heavens, quail, like God constantly showed you all these miracles. His presence was there, and yet... Your family from way back when still doubted God, still questioned Him. They still continued to rebel and live in this perpetual state of discouragement, distress, and this doubt, despite the miracles, despite the wonders. So I look through Scripture and you go, yeah, you know, I think of Moses. He's standing before a burning bush. That doesn't happen every day. You look at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He's in the temple and suddenly an angel appears. That never happened to him before. You got Gideon here with an angel of the Lord standing before him. And yet in the whole process, even as they're presenting this miraculous encounter, they're already questioning. They're doubting. Zechariah had his mouth shut because he wouldn't believe what he was being told. He questioned it. And I think, how many times, Glenn, have you prayed and you kind of threw in a bit of a, well, Lord, if you could just answer this prayer, then, then I'm really, really going to be on fire. If you could just take care of this issue. Every indication from Scripture proves otherwise with regards to this strategy of somehow a sign will do it for us. Even when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I was reading in the Scripture there that those who were there, many of them who saw that, dead person rise, turned on him. They started to plot his death. Signs not just going to cut it. Miracles of God do not guarantee faith as a child of God. Neither does the presence of evil and struggle and all these issues in any way disqualify God's character or his presence in existence. See, we need to understand something. Present circumstances don't always dictate God's Abilities or lack thereof. And we have a very bad habit as human beings to believe that we are so important that our lives and then all the conditions and everything that is happening around us somehow reflect God's character and that's so wrong. 
And that's why there are so many people that I encounter on the job site that they question the existence of God because, well, there's evil and there's pain and there's suffering. And how can you have that in the presence of a loving God? And they don't reconcile with each other. The problem is for them, I can understand if they've never picked up a Bible, but for us when we overlook these things is that we don't understand the bigger picture. That there are aspects that God says like free will and consequences of choices and training and even in discipline and endurance, as James talks about, perseverance, walking through these times. There is something called an enemy, as Ephesians 6 said, throwing fiery darts in our direction. There are so many aspects that help us understand, but we use the word us. If the Lord is with us, Gideon said, because we all know the world revolves around us. But we take finite ideas and concepts and emotions and we try to compare it and apply them to an infinite God. And God is not defined by what happens. And neither should you be defined by what happens to you. I run into Christians too who something bad happens to them and they think they're being punished. Yes, there's consequences to choices. Yes, there is life in trouble. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome this world. But despite the troubles, God expects so much more in the presence of him and distress. Romans eight twenty eight. that's why we use this verse all the time. And we know in all, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called who are children of God. These aren't cliches. These aren't just a nice poster to slap up on the wall and say, oh, that's a great verse. They are truths that God extends to us and asks us to grasp and hold on to them. Interestingly enough, with Gideon and the angel, you don't see the angel of the Lord defending God's absence for the last seven years or anything like that. No, the real issue here is Gideon, not the good old days, Gideon, with what you thought happened to your you know, forefathers. It's this principle that Jesus reiterated throughout his time on earth when he kept saying the kingdom of God is now. It's at hand. So what are you going to do? And so 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 is God's co-workers. Paul says, we urge you not to receive all God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And that's what Jesus constantly said. Don't just anticipate a heaven now. The kingdom of heaven is now. God confronts Gideon in the context of these struggles and, and in the perceived perception that, that somehow God's absent. And it says in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go. Go save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then, ah, pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Kingdom principle number two. Life in the kingdom involves direct involvement despite you, (laughs) despite your flaws, despite your perceived limitations. You can't read the Bible again and somehow walk away that God doesn't expect anything from his children, that there are implications, that he has a strategy and a plan that eternity far outweighs the time we have on this planet. 
Jesus came. He immediately chose those who would listen and say, okay, we're about kingdom work. Let's get going. In fact, part of the process, you've got to go make more disciples, people's followers of kingdom work. But the glitch in this strategy with God and what he has for mankind is exactly that. Mankind, we're the problem most of the time. Because like Gideon, we, I just, I'm not so sure about this. Because upon hearing this greeting and then calling, Gideon's response is not like many of us. Who, when God called upon, immediately drift into this reflection in the mirror. But do you see who you're looking at, God? Do you understand who you're working with? Moses did that. Peter, who failed Jesus, questioned his validity. Elijah goes into depression. Jonah runs the opposite direction. You read Psalms and you can't help but see King David questioning constantly himself. And so Gideon does the same. Pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan, my family. You see, their clan was a nobody clan. His family, he was the youngest In other words, they lived on the wrong side of the tracks. They wore the wrong name on the back of the jersey. He had already been convinced with his whole life. I'm least of the family. I'm insignificant. Let's focus on God's word to encourage Gideon. Another principle found throughout the scripture, it is dominant in God's kingdom work. It goes directly against what earthly endeavors entice us with. That you got to have a certain appearance and you're measured up and then you get worth. God's kingdom works on a different way. See, I left out five words in that verse I just read in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength you have. In other words, what you possess, no matter how small or how large, is enough. To be a part of God's kingdom work. He is not waiting for the letters behind your name. He is not waiting till you hang that special diploma on the wall. It's the principle Jesus tried to portray so many times. When he took just loaves of bread and fish and multiplied it. I took such little and I can turn it into so much. It's the principle of a teenage girl becoming the mother of God. Even the city in which Jesus was born. What do we read? Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Least. By no means least among the nations. But that's where God's going to come from. It was what the Apostle Paul alluded to in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Later in 1 Corinthians 4.10, he would write, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We are weak, but you are so strong. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? The Bible tells me so. Little ones, him are weak, but he is strong. Are you sensing the theme behind God's strategy, getting a feel for a gist of what he's about? In Judges, we read in the very next verse, 15, the Lord answered Gideon and says, I will be with you. Now go strike him down. Gideon, I'm going to be with you. 
Countless years later, Jesus would be standing before his disciples. He would echo this kingdom principle and this promise with the illustration that he gave to his disciples because they came back at one time and they couldn't cast out a demon of a certain individual. And we read in Matthew 17, 20, he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you just had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's, that's pretty big. I don't know how many mountains you've seen moved in your life. But I'm saying a lot of us live in this restricted kind of idea of faith. That somehow we've pulled ourselves out. That somehow I, I have to have more behind my name, more training. I have to have more control of, of issues in my life that I, my addictions or whatever it is. That before I could ever be of use to God, that somehow, and we pull ourselves out. We disqualify ourselves. And then we fall into, well, i got to take care of my needs. And we go into full tech work and maintaining a family and all of these things. Because i, I got to retire, you know, somewhat healthy. But at what cost? And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, Therefore, I tell you guys, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about eating and drinking and your body and what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds they're taken care of. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can you even bring one more hour to your life by worrying? Because God knew we would be consumed with this measuring. And every time throughout my life, my family would describe me as a workaholic. I blame my father. We always blame our parents. Literally, we worked out of town for years. We slept on the job site. I didn't know what a hotel was until I worked for another company. And I thought I had finally arrived. I got a room, not a floor in the corner of the job site. But here we have an opportunity to do what God calls. And I get consumed with what I think i got to take care of myself. So every time I worked on the Sabbath, you know, to cover needs, God would understand. I spoke volumes. Every time we turn down a role in the church of some significance just to help and to serve. Because, wow, we got things we're doing right now. It speaks volumes. I don't want to minimize how important these things are, and we don't abandon our families, but we rationalize it so often that we can go to the end of our lives. You know how many years my wife and I say, oh, we ought to be in a Bible study with someone. <laughs> I laughed the other day. I said, honey, let's look back. How long have we been saying that? And we're still saying it. Sporadic church attendance, ministry involvement, scripture reading, disciplines of, the, of discipleship. See, how we treat those all reveal our inner value and our core true inner beliefs. And Jesus said, I want to take this principle of faith and trust and I want to illustrate it. So he goes to the disciples and say, to, just to show you how even the smallest amount. And again, so we read in Mark 4.30. And again, Jesus said, what, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable should I use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed. Remember that? Which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. We sing that song as kids all the time. Oh, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And so often in life, we pulled ourselves out. 
And then I look in TV and there's such great importance put on individuals who are simply famous or very wealthy that speak not even the fields of their expertise and we worship their words because we've measured them. They've made it. They're successful. They're somebody. I see them on the screen almost every week. What they say must be important. God's kingdom works so counter to that. The problem with that type of thinking is you actually believe it's about you, right? The world revolves around us. And we're ignoring the very basic principle of trust and faith in a God that wants to use what you have. Do you remember in the Bible where that guy gave literally countless millions to the temple? I don't. It doesn't exist. What do we remember? Two copper coins. Widow gave all she had. See, that became historic. That became a wonder. She gave what she had. Living like this requires something that God says, you're going to have to have, Gideon. Life in the kingdom, our final point, invites dependence on God despite the task before us. Trust. How big is trust? Ask any one of us. We know it's a tough thing. Initially, Gideon asked the angel of the Lord to stay and wait. He prepares a meal for him. And what do we read? Then God gave a sign. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And go, that's a good sign. Gideon, you ought to be convinced. First, angel of the Lord. Two, rock producing fire. I think Gideon is beginning to feel the weight of the task and the responsibility. He does what we all do. He begins to wonder, question, looks in the mirror, and he says, okay, Lord, do you mind? And that's the fleece tests. Going to put a fleece out. It's wet, ground around a dry place, done. Okay, yeah, it might have been coincidence. Let's reverse that. Let's get the dry and the wet done the opposite direction. And God does it. He allows Gideon to see that. And finally, Gideon says, oh, okay, maybe I'm, I'll believe it. And so then Gideon steps up to the task. But God, even though he complies with some of those answers to some weak faith, he says, I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to stretch your faith. And this is the part we often don't like as a child of God. And so we're told that there's 32,000 men that he gathers together to fight the Midianites. That's pretty good. But God says, yeah, I don't want you thinking that it's about you guys. So let's drop that by 22,000. We're now down to 10,000. Okay, 10,000. And then we read throughout the thing, he drops it down to 300. And then we're told the enemy, by the way, in Judges 7, is described as thick as locusts. And the camels are as countless as the hands on the seashore. (laughs) I think if the camels alone could take the 300, never mind the riders. And I'm thinking, Glenn, how often in life we feel sometimes like the odds are so against us. We're down to 300 or less. We're not understanding what's happening, why it's happening. And God says, I'm looking for a mustard seed, a mustard seed of faith. We want assurances. We want the comfort of the income coming in. We want the comfort of the doctor saying it's all approved and we're moving on. We, we want those. I understand that. That's being part of human. But there are moments in your life that God is going to stretch you and stretch me. And he has. And that's why I ask you to remember promises like 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Psalms 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. The word trust literally in the Bible means a bold 
confident, sure security, or action based on that security. Trust is not exactly the same as faith. Faith is a gift from God, but rather trusting is what we do because we have faith that we have been given. Trusting is believing in the promises of God regardless of the circumstances. Evidence that seems to say contrary to what we perceive about God. Again, we're finite. We're not understanding. We have a sin nature in us that kind of tints everything we see. And we begin to fall into this depression. And it is by trust, we are told, that we receive peace. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. We have the classic verse, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. See, that sums up trust. It's who we're trusting. We can't trust in our plans. We can't trust in how the world perceives things. We trust in the Lord because He is trustworthy. We don't trust in ourselves, as I said. We're temporal. We're finite. We have a sin nature. It's like walking over a rotten bridge, thousand feet chasm below, and you're going, yeah, I'm going. That's what trusting in yourself is like. You read Psalms, and David is constantly talking about trust, not in the riches of this world, but in him. And so Gideon steps out despite the fears, despite the doubts, the concerns, and victory was theirs. And in accomplishing this mission, his faith develops and grows, and he proves to be a faithful man, a mighty warrior, a strong leader. Later in Scripture, he's used as a diplomat. He's included in Hebrews 11 as the list of famous people. And his faith was weak at times and probably continued to be so, but God patiently worked with him as he wants to with us. And Gideon's obedience to the Lord required him to take a stand even against his family. His family worshipped Baal. You read in the rest of Judges. His village. And at nighttime, he was so scared still, he went out and he took down the altar to Baal. And he says, I'm now standing and I'm not just fighting a physical army, I'm fighting another army of the influence of those closest to me. And that's a big thing. And so in closing, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul that said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all this. I can. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So God uses ordinary people. And he stretches us and he asks us to step out and to have faith. And even the smallest amount will grow. And that's what he wants. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you again for this time, for this opportunity to be in your word. Uh, Lord, there are so many countless examples of people and nations and people, how we respond to you. And it is so true. It is such a true reflection of humanity. It's a reflection of me that I can be up one moment and down the next. I can be so encouraged and then so depressed And so emotional about these things. And yet the only thing that I have ever found in my life that helps me sustain some stability is the word of God. And I just pray as we allow your words, your truths, your promises, the Holy Spirit to speak through the scriptures, to just teach us and to reflect and be able to sometimes even discipline us. Help us to understand that not minimizing what's going on in our lives, we call upon healings and for addictions to be recovered and for strength and all of these things. We trust you, but we must also trust all your answers. And sometimes that answer is a no. Sometimes that answer is seven years. But we never relate our circumstances to who you are. You are God. You are infinite. You are sovereign. 
May we understand this. May we trust in this. May we have mustard seeds of faith that you use to do powerful things. In Jesus' name, amen.